The Gist is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk using your own computer and printer. Right now, get a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer by going to Stamps.com and using the promo code THEGIST. It's Wednesday, May 20th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. What's up with the presidential candidates? Let's do a check-in, a little partial check-in. Rand Paul, busy today, filibustering the Patriot Act. Ted Cruz said, quote, Is there something about the left, and I'm going to put the media in this category, that is obsessed with sex? Maybe. More so than the right? Probably not. Hillary Clinton, she was secretary, you know Hillary Clinton, she was secretary of state until February 2013, then she went on the speaking trail, guess how much she made since then, $12 million, I have a list of some of her best paydays, biotechnology industry organization, $335,000, Qualcomm, $335,000, Cisco, eBay, Nexenta, all over 300 Gs, she spoke to the Canadians, Vancouver Board of Trade, 275.5, she insisted on that one. Board of Trade, Metropolitan, Montreal, Canada 2020. She's speaking, she's taking money from foreign governments. Then down the list, Let's Talk Entertainment Inc. for $265,000 in April of 2014. Hell, for that kind of scratch, Let's Talk Entertainment Inc. Another $265,000, this time in June of 2014. And for $280,000, A&E Television Networks. President Obama said, I don't believe in all wars, just stupid wars, to which Hillary Clinton added, and storage wars. Bobby Jindal released an ad, or the people backing Bobby Jindal, released an ad today in Iowa. Here's some of that. The United States of America did not create religious liberty. Religious liberty created the United States of America. Yeah, I don't know about that, but I do know this. The way things are going in his home state, Bobby Jindal is eager to run for the president from the state of Louisiana, but even more so, Louisiana seems eager to run out presidential candidate Bobby Jindal. In the spiel today, wake the kids, phone the neighbors. It's David Letterman's last show. Like Gus, the driver of the bookmobile, he was gruff but lovable, and I will tell you how he shaped my sensibilities You might have seen last night's show, Bob Dylan was the musical guest, so today I'm going to talk about Bob Dylan. 50 years ago, 1965, was the beginning of a period of just over a year where three of the greatest rock albums of all time appeared. They were all from the mind, pen, and guitar of Bob Dylan. So 1905 is sometimes called the Annus Mirabilis for Albert Einstein, his miracle year. Well, 1965 was something similar for Bob Dylan. Let's find out how. In 1965, Dylan went electric, which means the whole world went electric. Bob Dylan, obviously one of the most important people in the history of American music. In 1965, 50 years ago, there was about a 14-month period where he made the most important music, music that that still is shaping America today. The album Bringing It All Back Home was released uh, just a little over a couple months ago, March 22nd, 1965. That same calendar year, Highway 61 Revisited comes out, and then Blonde on Blonde is released in May of 1966. So if you add it all together, 14 months, three amazing albums, an amazing transformation and an amazing output. Okay, have I used the word amazing too much? Bob Dylan would not approve. He's good with words. So is David Kinney. He's written The Dylanologists, Adventures in the Land of Bob, where he talks about Dylan obsessives. And hello, David. 
Hello, thanks for having me on. So let's talk about 1965 and where he was. Already famous, famous as a folk singer and a folk writer, Blowing in the Wind is already in the books. And, you know, this was before he, quote unquote, went electric. So what did the public think of him and what was going through his own head, his self-conception uh, in the beginning of that year? Well, you know, he's established himself as as a, a folk singer. You know, he's he's a guy with a guitar. He's a troubadour. You know, he will forever be marked as as the guy who wrote Blown in the Wind and the times there that uh, a change in, even though that was this tiny sliver of time uh, when he was, you know, 20 years old or something. So in 64, he's kind of given up the, the songs that are more political, that are more, um, you know, that could be called protest songs. He's recorded uh, Another Side of Bob Dylan, which is personal songs. They're still folk songs, you know, folk kind of sound. It's still him and a guitar. You know, they're more personal songs. And so some of the you know, folk crowd who had followed him initially were already upset with him. So here in 65, he comes and, and in January of, of 65, he goes into the studio really for the first time with an electric band. The idea of doing at least some of his next record becomes bringing it all back home as an electric album. He goes in and he does uh, um, Subterranean Homesick Blues and he does uh, Outlaw Blues and he does these first stabs at, at electric music. Johnny's in the basement Mixing up the medicine I'm on the pavement Thinking about the government Man in the trench coat Badge out, let off Says he got a bad cough I want to get it paid off Look at kid Something he did God knows when but And after he records this, this uh, album Which is half half electric, half acoustic, you know, the acoustic half includes, you know, Mr. Tambourine Man, uh, It's All Right Ma, you know, these, these famous acoustic songs, and then he goes to England, and uh, he's still playing those songs. Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man, play a song for me. I'm not sleepy, and there is no place I'm going to. You know, and so through that year, he says later that he was sort of getting bored with just being up there with an acoustic guitar. He goes off and, and he says he's actually thinking of, of quitting. He thinks he's taken it as far as he can take it. At the same time, he's been writing this novel that he had been contracted to write. So fall of 1964, spring of 1965, he's writing this kind of like, you know, it's sort of like Dylan lyrics. I mean, it's very, uh, very elusive prose poetry sort of stuff. And, you know, it seems that what grows out of that is is like a Rolling Stone. I mean, he describes that as being you know, initially 20 pages of vomit. He was just writing and writing and writing. And he goes in there with a, a blues guitarist named Mike Bloomfield. Al Cooper plays the organ and, and, and a full band and uh, over a couple of days records this song that, you know, changes everything. You used to laugh about Everybody that was hanging out Now you don't talk so loud He has the first song off the second album from 1965. He has all of Highway 61, which is half electric. Why at Newport in July of 65 was it so shocking that he plugged in? It's the place that he did it as much as anything else. You know, so you got to remember he'd been playing Newport and Newport was seen as kind of the cradle of the folk revival. People who were involved, you know, Pete Seeger, these guys, these guys were 
wedded to you know a troubadour with a guitar and yeah. so uh to, to show up with with a band and play something that sounded a little bit more like you know rock music you know it smacked of commercialism i guess to them anymore. He's, he's accepted he's, he's part of your establishment and forget him. So October, I mean, it's only a few months later, that's when they start the recording sessions for Blonde on Blonde. This one took a lot longer. I mean, uh, bringing it all back home was was a couple of days in January. Uh, uh, Highway sixty one took you know a week basically, or not not even a few days in the studio. Uh, Blonde on Blonde is going to take several months and a lot of different recording sessions and actually two cities. Of Johanna are now all that remain. And when it comes out, he's famous. I mean, he's already well known. The other albums. Does everyone realize that Blonde on Blonde is, you know, one of the greatest rock albums of all time? That's a good question. I'm, I mean, I'm I'm too young to know sort of the contemporary reaction to it. But you know, what's happening here is. As it's coming out, he's doing this sort of in the midst of this world tour, and so this is this is that famous uh, tour of the UK where he's being booed over there, and he's playing with the band, and they're playing some of the most incredible, loud, electrified shows that anybody's heard. He, he's at the peak of his game, really. It was a crazy loud tour, and it and it ended with with him coming home and getting into a motorcycle accident and, and going off the road for for a long time. Is there any way to put in perspective the the three albums of the 14 months we're talking about? It's compared to even Lil Wayne, who seems to drop something every week. It seems unprecedented in the history of music. Yeah, you know, it's it seems that at that time that that, that you were expected to produce a lot more. You know, mm-hmm. you were expected to keep your name in the charts. But yeah, you have this 23, 24 year old kid who's apparently high on speed a lot, uh, a lot of the time, who has been soaking up influences since he got to New York and perhaps before. He's hanging out with, with beat poets. He's hanging out with sort of a hipster crowd. And all that stuff kind of comes together into this, this moment where it just happens and it just works. It is amazing. It's amazing to listen to. And it's amazing how timeless the stuff is. You know, it's, it's, it's not stuff that feels dated even when you listen to it now. So you always wonder where genius comes from, and he has previously demonstrated aspects of genius, but do you think the turmoil of his life in the Times directly contributed to the greatness of the output, or did he, or you can make an argument that he actually fought through it? Uh, as somebody who didn't live through it, it's, it's difficult to say, but I would say that has to be true. You have the civil rights stuff going on at that time, you know, you have the drugs, you have all that stuff that, that is is percolating the air and that he's soaking it in. Uh, I mean, being there at, you know, during the folk revival in Greenwich Village 
with all of these musicians who were not just folk musicians, but jazz musicians and blues musicians and, and sort of steeping in that stuff. Sure, that stuff had to, had to influence it. This stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum, obviously. What's also interesting, just as a side note, I mean, in, in uh, late 65, early 66, he's getting married and he's having his first, chi- his first child in the midst of all this stuff. So think about that a little bit. The Dylanologist, Adventures in the Land of Bob Dylan, David Kinney. We've been talking about the 50th anniversary of a three-album series that just is unrivaled in terms of American music history. Thank you, David. Hey, thanks for having me. And now a word from our sponsor. You know about the concept of the Comprinter. It's a computer and printer all in one. Why doesn't it exist? Well, pretty much the same reason your TV plus VCR stopped existing. Once one broke, they all broke. Anyway, you know what's not broke? Stamps.com. Stamps.com takes away the inconvenience of going to the post office, takes away that inefficiency, and ejects efficiency. The efficiency of a well-working, well-oiled Comprinter. Don't oil the Comprinter. It doesn't take oil. Why do these people think everything takes oil? Stamps.com, with its digital scale that they give you, will tell you the exact postage you need, will help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs, and will allow you to print out official U.S. postage for any letter, for any package, using your Comprinter. Over 500,000 small businesses that use Stamps.com never go to the post office right now. So right now we have a promo code. The promo code is the gist, and that qualifies you for this special offer. No risk trial, $110 bonus offer. It includes digital scale and up to $55 in free postage. Don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com. Enter the gist. And now the spiel can't find a better man. So tonight is the last night of Letterman, an occasion that hasn't exactly been ignored or slighted, even on this show. Letterman was the most important force in television in the last 30 years. I think that that is accurate. In fact, Letterman might be the single most important influence on the attitudes of Americans of a certain ilk those who style themselves as humorous, for instance. Let me quote Jessica Winter in writing a Slate piece. The piece was titled, David Letterman Raised Me. Letterman's influence on the entertainment world is so totalizing as to be invisible. On the real world, too, I would add. Before Letterman, in mass consciousness, humor was a lot more hemmed in. A funny person was a person who knew a lot of jokes, like a Borscht Belt comic, or it could also be a person who was clever on the spot, witticisms and repartee that have always been valued. But comedy as an attitude, or more accurately, as a way of seeing the world, I don't know that Letterman caused it, but he's certainly highly correlated to it. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think that Letterman invented an attitude. What he did was he elevated it. At its lowest level, the attitude is just insincerity. 
which is just saying things you don't believe, which, by the way, is all humor. But insincerity without anything extra is just diffident and oppositional. So the next level up is sarcasm. Chevy Chase gave us sarcasm. Sarcasm was behind the line said by Bill Murray in Stripes and Caddyshack. A lot of other good things were infusing those Bill Murray performances, too, like rebellion and absurdity. But it didn't generally get past sarcasm. The gap from sarcasm to the next level, which is irony, That's the gap that Letterman bridged. Oh, yeah, there was lots of sarcasm. On the micro level, most of his every utterances were sarcastic. This is from his second show ever in 1962. How do you do? What is your name, sir? Dick Eckelbarger. Dick Eckelbarger, stand up for a second. Do you mind, Dick? Where are you from? You look like you have a tan. Tucson, Arizona. And you are in New York City for the purpose of? Uh, Business purposes. Uh, Can you be a little more specific about that, uh, Dick? (laughs) Uh, We're here selling some software products. And uh, software being computer programs. Oh, yeah. Um, Does that mean anything to anybody? Okay, almost every rejoinder there was sarcastic, including the bit about not knowing what software meant. But why it's also ironic is that all those jokes and the attitude were in service to a larger bit. And what happened there was an audience member was selected. She was asked, hey, is there any of this TV equipment that intrigues you? She said, yeah, the big camera. And she was asked if she wanted to give it a whirl. And the entire first segment of The Letterman Show, his second show ever, was filmed poorly by an audience member. On his ninth show on NBC, his ninth ever show, the first five minutes of the show were all a POV shot of staff coming up to Letterman, frantically informing him of what to expect. Hey, the order's been changed. Here's a list of things that the guest Andy Rooney doesn't like or... Just a little thing about the audience. Yeah. A lot of them are from Brazil. Brazil. And, uh, and they don't understand so much English. So uh, if you can throw in a few Spanish words, you know, like arriba, buenos dias, okay. que pasa. No, wait, they speak Portuguese, not Spanish. This was all irony. This was daring. This was being insincere or being sarcastic, but to convey a worldview, not mere diffidence. Oh, yeah, he was really smart. He was really clever. He said to Steve Martin a couple of weeks ago in Steve Martin's last appearance on the show, he was weird. He said that, he said to Steve Martin, I think we're weird in the same way. I think that Letterman changed the world, changed what it meant to be funny and changed what it meant to be a broadcaster. Jessica Winter, who I quoted, says that she was raised by Letterman. I know that he changed me and definitely didn't raise me. But I am speaking about Letterman personally and his influence on me. He was really important. The biggest broadcast influences, well, let's see, I'd have to say Doug Llewellyn from the People's Court, the cast of Zoom. No, no. (laughs) No, it was Letterman, Howard Stern, Mike and the Mad Dog. You know, I'll admit to listening to a lot of radio and a lot of it somehow made its way into my brain, maybe in ways I can't discern today. Like there was Bob Grant, original conservative yeller. Your influence counts. Use it. Get Gaddafi. There was a late-night talker named Ira Fistel, who was a big fan of Mark Twain. I remember, I mean, I haven't listened to this guy in 33 years. Just as I said his name and Mark Twain, it hit me. Oh, yeah, his favorite Mark Twain work was Puddinhead Wilson. He would say that all the time. He would talk to listeners about what happened in the cave in A Passage to India. I've never seen A Passage to India. I just know something happened in a cave and Ira Fistel was talking about it. I also listened to a program on 570 AM that my 11 or 10-year-old sense vaguely recognized as the preachings of a Christian ministry. But it wasn't until years later that I figured out that Herbert W. Armstrong was a wee bit bonkers. I still remember how the program started. And now the world tomorrow. 
Herbert W. Armstrong brings you the plain truth about today's world news and the prophecies of the world tomorrow. The world tomorrow. And greetings, friends. This is Herbert W. Armstrong with the good news of the world tomorrow. What is prophesied for tomorrow for the United States? I thought by prophecies he meant insights and predictions. No, it was more like let's look at the U.S.-Soviet relationship like the Bible wants us to. Today, parents worry about their kids being bullied on Instagram. Mine should have fretted over a 10-year-old being warped by the prophecies of Reverend Herbert W. Armstrong. But from each of these sources, I got something. From Howard Stern, I got creativity. I got conviction, belief in what you were doing, even though everyone was telling you it was stupid. From Ira Fistel, I got the idea that a radio program could come back to themes that it itself creates, could come back over and over. From Mike and the Mad Dog, I got strong ideas about when to bunt. Also, equanimity, calm. (laughs) Not really. Listen to this. This was last week. This was Mike Francesa on his now solo show. Check out the time it takes for Mike Francesa to go from, okay, I'm listening, to shut the hell up. Hey, uh, yes. first of all, I want to say that Brady and the two guys are totally, totally innocent. How are they innocent? Let me tell you why. Yeah, let me hear this one. This is good. Let me hear how they're innocent. Go ahead. All right. Mother Nature, over the last hundred years, every time there's a football filled at 12.5, and it goes outside stop, the cold stop, temperature. Stop, stop, stop before wait, you. Wait, wait, don't, wait. Don't, let me stop, finish. No, let me stop finish. before wait, you no, embarrass no, yourself. So stop. Stop no. now. Stop. Don't give me atmosphere. Don't give me atmosphere. What you know is that you're a fan who's a fool. Letterman suffered fools just as witheringly, but with a lance, not a blunderbuss. The attitude skewered the pretensions of celebrity in the exact opposite way that today's late night shows are literally engaged in a big celebrity sing-along. And this means that Dave has some extra credibility, like when he gave his approval to a celebrity. Bill Murray, Sandra Bernhard, Brother Theodore, Kmar, the discount magician. Thank you, David. How are you? What a welcome. Everybody loves me. How come? You miss it. <laughs> that seems to be the question of the hour. Uh, All right, Kmar, let's... Uh... As he winds down, the latest shows, laden as they are with sentiment and celebrity, do not hold a candle to any random show from the 1980s. If you don't know the history, and you know probably if you didn't live through it, to you, Letterman is just a host who's not as conversant as Kimmel, who's not as sharp as Stewart, who's not as... This kind of kills me a little, but... He's not as funny as Fallon anymore, but he still stakes his claim to being sincerely insincere. He could still puncture a blowhard when he rouses himself. In the last few years, he was more like the foreman of a comedy factory. It worked. There were laughs, but it wasn't the rogue entrepreneur building a new aesthetic out of the garage and hoping the big boys didn't notice and crush him. It's all fine. Letterman is retiring for a reason. But to any American who is prone to wiseassery, who is suspicious of decorum, who is uncomfortable with self-puffery, Letterman left a mark that is not going away. And I think we all know how painful that can be. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi used to have a laugh regarding everybody that was live blogging. Now she don't talk so loud. Now she don't seem so proud about getting traffic by puzzling out the Bachelorette's deal. How does it feel? Joel Meyer, managing producer. How does it feel to be on your own with an out-of-date iPhone that elicits a groan when it plays your Franz Ferdinand ringtone? 
own. Now you, now you, executive producer Andy Bowers, now you realize that it will take a lot to apologize for the time you launched a wildlife podcast but failed to tranquilize the wildebeest with the crazy eyes. So I ask you, what's your deal? How does it feel to be a social media quitter? To not follow the gist on Twitter, at Slate Gist. Did I sound, yeah? Well, I'm a little bitter. Or you could say I'm pissed. My grace and comportment are missed. Though it's easily dismissed when I say on the gist. Thanks for listening to my Dylan-esque drone. Like a trolling moan. I'm Alex Wagner, co-host of Podcast for America, a new show from Panoply. We have a lot on deck this week, including why politicians don't ever want to answer any questions, ever. Also, why can't Republicans talk about the Iraq War? And finally, Mitt Romney stepped into the ring with Evander Holyfield, and we can't stop talking about it. So stop what you're doing and subscribe to Podcast for America at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Did he take the balls and order the equipment guy to alter them? No. No? What do you mean, no?